I will never forget Ian's application. He was so different from everybody else that applied to this job. Because as the person who's creating the job, you expect to get your ass kissed. Ian wasn't kissing anybody's ass. So instead, what he did was he said, like, look, here's like a piece of my portfolio. If you want to see the whole thing, I really am going to need you to sign an NDA, which is a non-disclosure agreement. Dan had a desk kind of across from mine. I couldn't really see his desk from mine, but... I remember thinking like, this is an interesting guy. Like he's in and out of the owner's office all day. He reads books on his lunch break and he didn't really want to have anything to do with me. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Hey everyone, today is a special episode. We've been working on it for a while. It's sort of a long-form look at Ian and I's relationship over the years. We really wanted to run a dynamite deal this week, and it didn't really fit into the flow of that pod, so we decided just to put the deal up front. So hope you enjoy this week's deal, and we'll get started with the story in just a few minutes. Through the power of podcast editing, the boss man and I have warped in with another dynamite deal. You can check out today's dynamite deal over at dynamitedeals.co. This one is an interesting one. The tagline is simply this, never fly coach again. So for the low price of $449, it's a one-time fee, you are going to get a strategy session that'll help you outline how to get the most rewards points based on your credit card spending. And then you're going to have unlimited ticket bookings for those rewards points to turn them into business class itinerary. So it's a productized service that's run by a company named Points Panda. You can check out pointspanda.com. This is the cheapest way to fly business class. For me, there's just no better way to fly. And let me tell you, I've done some of this on my own, Dan. It's extremely tedious. Yeah, It takes a lot of time, expertise, knowledge. Like I will happily pay less than $500 for someone to do this for me multiple times a year. This deal is good for two weeks or 50 new clients. So, and I think we're probably going to reach that because quick. it's a service business. Yep. We got to cap it at 50 people. This includes a strategy call. It really includes a bunch of calls like throughout the year. The owner of Points Pan is willing to get on calls with you, strategy session, figure out, hey, am I still doing the right thing six months from now? Or is this still the right relevant card? Because these things are changing. Loving this one, boss man. Again, it's only available for 50 spots or for two weeks, depending on which one comes first. I think this one's going to move pretty quick, boss man, because everybody wants to fly business class and it, it can be a pain in the butt. But if you're an entrepreneur, you're probably spending enough money every month that, that could put you in business class for every flight. So go to dynamitedeals.co, check it out. If you have any questions, email us at team at dynamitedeals.co or directly at pointspanda.com. I think it's fair to say the biggest request for a podcast episode that we receive that we haven't yet done is an episode that explores the entire backstory between Ian 
and myself and sort of what transpired after we met. Like, how do we get into business together? Why did we start doing this podcast? What did our businesses look like? Why did we start our private members group, the Dynamite Circle, and so on? And we do mention snippets of that story from time and time again, but there's never really been a full narrative anywhere of what's happened in the last decade and a half. Well, that's going to change today. For the next two weeks, we're going to lay out that story on the podcast, and then I promise we'll never mention it again. So let's get to it. Our story starts in the land of dreams and high rents, Southern California, San Diego to be precise. That's where Ian and myself, by happenstance, both wash up within 12 months of each other. I arrived just ahead of Ian, having finished my fascinating, but far from magnetic to employers, degree in philosophy. The year is 2004. I moved to San Diego because I hung out with a bunch of people in college who had relocated to come to this university town in South Carolina. And we were all basically dreading real life. And so we pulled out a, a map of the United States. And what drew us to San Diego, I think, and I hesitate to mention, is at the time there was this very popular reality television show called The Real World. The Real World. And their latest season or like a season previous had been set in San Diego. This beach town where young people hang out and it just seemed like the greatest place on earth. So I didn't have a job lined up. Remember, I had a philosophy degree, so I didn't even have any prospects. I didn't have any money, but I did have a credit card. And I didn't have a car. So I didn't really have anything except a friend who had a car who was willing to share driving duties with me out to San Diego. And that's how the journey started out. But I'll tell you what, I remember like coming over the mountains. There's this sort of mountain range as you enter California. And before it, it's like pretty desolate America, you know, like breaking bad America. And then you sort of descend out of this mountain range into San Diego. And it was the coolest thing I had ever seen in my life. It was like all of a sudden my life was going to be the movies. That's what it felt like rolling into uh, San Diego in a Chevrolet Blazer with 200,000 miles on it. Got a lease on a place in Mission Hills, San Diego. There was four of us. There was two bedrooms and there was four air mattresses. So the reason I decided to move to San Diego was I'd always kind of uh, liked the idea of uh, living in California. I had gone to school at the uh, Savannah College of Art and Design for product design. And I think late in my senior year, sometime in my senior year, I kind of figured out that most of the design jobs that I wanted to get were in California. I got the idea with a good friend of mine who is uh, also graduating who I grew up with. We kind of convinced each other, hey, this is the right time to move to California. And so uh, we packed up the U-Haul and we pulled it behind Greg's truck. And then I also had a car and we had Greg's ferrets with us. The ferrets are these, <laughs> these little cute animals, kind of rat-like, but much longer. 
I guess the interesting thing about ferrets is they're illegal in California. And so that becomes an issue once we get to the California border. But we packed up and we had walkie-talkies and it was a fun trip. I think I had probably about $5,000 to my name. And coincidentally, the time that we left for California, Hurricane Katrina had just hit. And while there wasn't any road closures or anything like that, the price of gas was like double or triple. And so we embark on this journey and immediately it cost more than I thought it was going to cost. So we ended up driving for uh, three or four days, I think it took us, get to the California border and have to hide his ferrets. We headed to kind of like the suburbs of San Diego to find a cheap hotel. We check into this hotel. It's kind of on the side of the highway. I think it was like 60 bucks a night. It fit our budget. That was our only requirement. And we check in and this is the perfect place to let the ferrets run around because they've been in the truck for the past week almost, caged up. And so we let the ferrets out. They're running around in the room, happy. And we decide that we need to go out and get some dinner. So we put the uh, do not disturb tag on the outside of the hotel door because obviously we don't want anyone coming in there. Not so much because the maid knows that ferrets are illegal, but because as soon as you open the door, these things will run out. And so we put the tag on the door. Uh, We go out to dinner and we come back and the tag is off the door. Open the door and the ferrets are gone. Immediately, we figure out that someone's been in the room because uh, the beds are made. We asked the staff if they'd been in there. They said yes. We asked them if they'd seen the ferrets. They said no. And so eventually, we call animal control. We figure out that they have the ferrets. Someone had called them in. Basically, animal control says ferrets are illegal in California. We are going to euthanize them unless you get them on a plane in the next couple of days. And so... Greg put his ferrets on a plane, and they traveled back to Virginia. So I don't remember how long it took me to find a job. I remember it was really nerve-wracking, though. Going around to various interviews, trying to do so without owning a car. There's two jobs that I'll never forget. Two job postings on Craigslist, which at the time was more or less the place you got jobs. And I think at the beginning, my Craigslist hustle and optimism was strong. I was like applying to everything, creating custom cover letters for everything. And I think like a week or two into it, it started to get pretty rough and I would just start to spam everybody because no one was responding to me. No one wants to hire a philosophy major with no experience. I did end up getting into an email correspondence with one very promising job that was sort of my dream job on the the surface, it was this opportunity to apprentice for a successful rich person. I always felt like, man, if I could just get in the door with somebody, I could prove my worth. And uh, I don't remember exactly how it went down, but it turns out that this wasn't so much a job ad as a dating ad, if you know what I mean. And my hopes were dashed there. I feel like a lot of other people have been in this situation, but there was this one job ad that looked really great. No experience required, and you just need to be all these great personality traits that, of course, I had all of them. And so I went to this job interview, 
And I rocked up to this sort of corporate building and I sit in the lobby and there's like a bunch of people sitting in the lobby. They eventually like kind of give me this pre-screen interview and, and then they send me into the big boss. And he's sitting behind this big oak desk and he's sort of young and slick back hair. And he's telling me about like how amazing it is to work at this place and how much money they're all making. And he told me about the car that he drives. And I was like, okay, this definitely seems great. I need a car. You know, <laughs> I need all this stuff. And so he said, like, how about you go out with our top sales rep into the field and talk directly with our clients? And so I'm like, hell yeah, I'm going to go out into the field. Let's do this. So this is like a half an hour after I met this guy. And so fast forward an hour, I'm in a van with this young dude. I remember the moment when the van door slid open and we were in the middle of a neighborhood. And I hadn't bothered to ask like, what the hell we were going to do. And my whole body froze when I realized we were going to be going door to door selling vacuum cleaners. I remember just thinking like, I'm such an idiot. And I walked to the first door and I, and I was like shaking. Like a combination of like, this is the dumbest thing in the world to like knock on someone's door and try to sell them a vacuum cleaner. I was just so mad about it that I just walked off. <laughs> I literally, I was like in the middle of this neighborhood. It's called Pacific Beach. I sat on a, a bus stop bench. If you've ever been there, you know what the bus stop bench is would have been like at that time in 2004. I mean, there's a certain type of person in San Diego that takes the bus to work. And uh, I guess I was that person in that moment. So I started looking for a job pretty immediately because I, I only had a couple thousand dollars. I started looking for design jobs because that's what I came there to do. And when I started looking, it became very evident to me that there was only like one or two firms in San Diego that were offering uh, product design positions. Neither of them were hiring at the time. I kind of remember thinking like, wow, I've made a mistake here. I didn't do any research to figure out how many of these companies were here, how many of them were hiring. I just kind of thought I was going to show up and everything was going to fall into place. So once I figured this out, I just thought like, wow, I guess my options are move to Los Angeles or try and figure something else out in the meantime. And so, you know, Greg was kind of in the same position. One of the first things that we did was uh, we put up an ad on Craigslist as pet sitters. And within like a few hours, we got inquiries. People were asking us like, hey, can you watch my dog? And so we started to get really excited. And then like the fifth email that we got was, hey, do you guys have insurance? Are you guys a legit company? It was basically someone trying to scare us out of the, the market. We were like, oh my gosh, yeah, you're right. We, we don't have the proper credentials to be a, a pet sitter. What are we doing? And so we instantly shut down the post and abandoned that idea. So at that point, I think I was starting to feel a little bit helpless I had worked uh, valet, valet parking in college. So I started to think like, okay, I guess I could just go back and do that. Greg had a uh, restaurant experience. And so we started surfing Craigslist and the classifieds for those types of positions. San Diego is kind of a, a hotbed for, for valet parking. A lot of restaurants. 
Massachusetts. And so that was my first job in, in San Diego. At the same time, it wasn't enough. So it wasn't going to pay all the bills. On one of Greg's interviews at a restaurant, he said, like, why don't you come with me to this and we'll see if we can get a job together at this restaurant. Greg got the job actually as a server. And they looked at me like, you have no restaurant experience. The best we can do for you here is make you a busboy. And I said, great, that's awesome. And I kind of figured like, you know, these two jobs together, I would be able to pay the rent. And so (laughs) that's how I started my career in San Diego was as a busboy part-time and as a valet part-time. And these were like, you know, stressful times, but also like really exciting times. We were just having a great time. We were going to the beach together. We were meeting new people. At some point, Greg decided that he wanted to valet cars. So I actually got him a job over at the valet with me. And so we were both working at the restaurant. And one of the things that we we figured out was that most of the time, it was only one of us was needed at the valet or the restaurant. Greg and I like to have flexible schedules. So at the restaurant, they started putting us on the schedule as Grian, which is G for Greg and then Ian for my name. And it was like whoever showed up, showed up and worked. And at the end of the night, when we would come home to our one-bedroom apartment in uh, Pacific Beach, we would put all of our money on the floor, all of our tips, and then we would just split it in half. It was really memorable times for me. I ended up getting a job in a strange way. It turns out it was true. Nobody wanted philosophy experience, but it turns out they did want warehouse experience. And I was lucky enough growing up to always have a job in a warehouse because my whole family works in factories. And so there's always extra work, you know, whether it's all different kinds of errand work. I consider myself to be an above average forklift operator and even working on the factory line. I've, I've just done that since I was a kid and I put it on my resume because I had done, I felt like I had done some innovative things to the warehouse when I was in college and I was proud of them. Although I think my coworkers thought I was just annoying. And that was what caught the notice of the uh, director of operations at K2LP, who's a woman named Tina. And she called me in. We had a great interview. And she offered me $11.50 an hour. And I took it. K2LP at the time was a what they would call a premium promotional products business. They create like junk with sports team logos on it that you sell like during sporting events or during corporate parties and things like that. And the K2 part was that this company had been acquired in this enormous roll-up by this famous K2 ski brand. So it's sort of interesting to be working for this smaller division of a company, like right next door, the CEO was like flying in on a jet. And then meanwhile, I'm with kind of all these people who had recently come from Missouri or whatever. I forget exactly where the company had relocated from. So how I eventually left this job at K2LP was first off, I hated it. And I thought I was really underpaid for what I was doing because I really thought that I was 
offering more than all of these people around me. I was just so disappointed. Only a few years previous, I'd been like reading Heidegger and like hanging out on a university campus, and there was all this possibility for life. And then fast forward a year, and I get these speeches from people who are like, if you just stay on the right track, like you'll get to have an office like this in 10 years. And literally, the office didn't have any windows and it was like a shoebox, but he was the manager of some weird product line. This was life for these people. That sounds bad, but it's true. I was just so disappointed in the people I found myself with. They were so happy to not give a shit about what they were doing every day. Like they didn't even care about this business. So I would like go into my boss's offices and give these like very naive and passionate speeches about how we could grow the company and fix all these problems. And I was willing to do it for nothing and all this. They just didn't know what to do with me. And meanwhile, I'm living with my best friend. He knows I'm miserable. I'm like noon Bloody Marys every Sunday miserable because it's coming up on Monday. My best friend, he goes to this interview because he's in the same situation trying to figure out what the hell to do. And by the way, at the time, I'm considering like joining the Navy. And they told me I couldn't join because I was overweight. And so it's like just got worse. My friend gets back from this interview and he's like, I met this guy and you got to go meet him. Like he was about to hire me, but I said, he needs to hire you. So I'm like, well, this is interesting. So at the time, we're sharing a car. So he drives me over to this guy's office. And I'm in like my stupid corporate getup. And I walk into this place. It's the ugliest office I've ever seen. It, everything's teal. And everything's like, it looks like they went down to the junkyard and just pulled in a bunch of random desks. And that's when I met this guy named Jim. He was the Stanford MBA who had really gotten beaten up in the tech industry. But he was like an entrepreneur to the core, like a sleep on the office floor entrepreneur. And I had never really met an entrepreneur before. But it gets better because he bought a steel company that was manufacturing point-of-purchase displays in China. And he was trying to figure out how to do this. He was literally sketching his own designs out on a piece of paper and faxing them to China. He had risked a million dollars buying this company in order to do something, quote, real. Well, the past year, I had been at K2LP, cutting my teeth on importing goods from China. That's all I did all day long. And remember the factories and warehouses I talked about my whole childhood? Guess what they made? Point of purchase displays. My dad ran a company that did this. I walked out of there with a job. So the end of the interview ends with him asking me how much money I made. I lied through my teeth because he was so impressed that I had worked at K2. So I said, you know, I make 37.5 annual. Anyway, he offers me 40. I walk out of that the happiest I've been in years and feeling that my whole life had just changed. I realized that all the things that made me the most annoying import clerk that K2 had ever had made me an asset to an entrepreneur. Because I wanted to sit around and ask questions about why we were doing things the way we were doing. I wasn't scared to do it. It's what I wanted to do. So now all of a sudden, my philosophy degree is kicking in. And I'm valued here. Because all we do 
in a very small, fragile company is ask existential questions. And we're not here trying to make jobs for ourselves or create work. We're trying to make this organism live. It was awesome because I got to be there for it. So I was the right hand from day one. You want to rank higher in Google? You got to get in touch with today's sponsor, smashdigital.com. That's right. It's Travis Jameson's amazing SEO company, which provides SEO services, link building, and for TMBA listeners, personalized mini audits. Here's Travis in his own words. We can take a look at your site from what Google sees. We can see how it's structured. We can see the links that you have. And in a short few minute video can add a ton of value to a lot of people's sites. Even if you're pretty advanced at this stuff, well, hey, that's going to make our job easier. We can say the specific things of probably what you need to do. Or if it's, you know, a site that's got a long ways to go, which we've seen some of, then we can kind of, you know, steer them in the big picture direction of how to improve stuff. Or even just give them stuff to read. But the, the videos just kind of like cover all that stuff. Travis has long been a trailblazer in the SEO field, not just regurgitating Google's best practices. They call it SEO with skin in a game. That's using the same strategies they're using on Travis's personal portfolio of businesses on their clients. So check out an SEO company that's zigging when everybody else is zagging. Get in touch with the team over at smashdigital.com. Now, let's get back to the story. So just for clarity, because this is going to become important later, Jim's company, the one I had just joined, was a manufacturing as a service business, or just a service business, which means that we took orders from our clients, which were often incredibly hard to please, and we were often competing against a bunch of other suppliers for those contracts. And those contracts were about designing and manufacturing their display fixtures. So those are the sorts of structures that you see in stores and shops every day. They either have food items or clothing or pet accessories or whatever on them. And some of our clients were huge household name brands. But here's the crucial thing. None of those products that we spent our entire workdays making belong to us. We were essentially producing designs and products that our customers owned. This is a distinction for us that would eventually prove decisive. But first, let's get to the part of the story where I meet Ian, and I'll let him take that up. So I think I stopped looking for a job after a while. I had figured out a way to survive. I certainly wasn't saving any money, but all my bills were covered. But then at some point, I guess it started to feel like a little bit empty. Like It started to feel a little bit hopeless, my situation. I started to think about you know, all the time and effort and money that I had spent on my education. And I started to want to be a professional designer. That's what I came to California to do. And so I remember working these jobs and then at some point kind of turning to Greg and saying, hey man, I'm going to start looking for jobs again. And if I don't find one in San Diego, I think I'm going to have to move to uh, Los Angeles or somewhere where there might be more job opportunities for product designers. So working for the new company was, it was amazing. You know, this entrepreneur is basically like, here's what I got. Here's how much money we make. Here's how many staff members we have. Here's all the client requests we're getting. Immediately, I started quoting. That was 
my first responsibility at this company, which is to quote projects. It was really challenging work because we're sort of pulling numbers out of our ass, right? And it has to work for everybody. So I'm sitting there in my early 20s saying, okay, well, let's email this person in New York and suggest that they pay us $65,000 tomorrow. Can we actually make profit on that? Is this a loss leader? There was all these kinds of like really hardcore business questions that I just got dumped into right away. I was on a warpath. I wanted to grow this company. I aligned with the vision of what he was trying to do, grow a multi-million dollar point-of-purchase display company that's a premier company, not just doing simple little wire displays, which was the history of the company. Eventually, we went to China together and we tried to grow our capabilities into plastics, into wood, into more complex materials so we could eventually land bigger deals. And I don't remember our revenue at the beginning, but we had added over 10 people to the team. I was hiring, firing, going to China. I remember getting a million-dollar check from Petco, and I was the salesperson on that account. So we were experiencing really fast growth. And I started to bring my kind of people into this company because all of a sudden I'd sort of taken over the hiring role. It was clear to me that we needed more design resources because in order to fend off the threat from our Chinese factories, what set us apart was our ability to think through problems with design. So I more or less managed the design team. Although the design team did have a manager, which might come up later in the story. So anyway, I put out this job ad for a designer. And then I think the job title might have been something like probably entry-level industrial designer. I start surfing Craigslist again, I think. I see an ad for product design at a uh, fixture company. And I didn't know anything about fixturing companies. And I could kind of tell from the ad that they didn't know anything about product designers. But I thought like this is pretty close to my skill set or what I thought my skill set was. I should apply because I think I, I, I might have a good shot at it. And so I applied to it and I got called in for an interview. I will never forget Ian's application. He was so different from everybody else that applied to this job. Because as the person who's creating the job, you expect to get your ass kissed because you created this job. And Ian wasn't kissing anybody's ass. So instead, what he did was he said, like, look, here's like a piece of my portfolio. If you want to see the whole thing, I really am going to need you to sign an NDA, which is a non-disclosure agreement. And of course, if you're hiring a designer, you got to see their portfolio. And I just thought, you know what? I kind of signed it out of spite. I was like, you know, F this guy. It doesn't matter. I remember looking at his portfolio and I think my first impression was like, I don't get what the big deal is about. Like, what? It was kind of like this motorcycle in there that was like something out of a sci-fi movie. Like, no one's going to be able to ever make this motorcycle. It doesn't even have wheels or whatever. But I also thought, oh, he's really interesting in a way that these other candidates aren't. It couldn't hurt to talk to him. And it turned out that he was easily the best candidate out of all the bunch. And the whole design team agreed on it. There was four of us at the time, and he was going to be the junior. And it was a pretty easy decision. 
So I got hired and it was a it was a yearly contract. My salary was $32,500. And I remember thinking that's okay, but at some point in design school like people were throwing out these numbers and it wasn't anywhere close to that number, so I thought like okay, this is okay, but like I think I'm supposed to be making more than this like with the skill set, but I didn't have the tools to like get myself to the next level or even like negotiate at this time, like I just thought like, okay, I'm happy to have a job. I'm going to get in here. I'm going to figure out what's going on. I'll take it. You know, I'll take the job. Actually, at the time, it was less money than I was making as a valet and a busboy because, you know, a lot of the valet tips and, and busboy tips were kind of under the table. And so when I first started working at the company, I think part of me was, I guess I'm, if I'm being honest, like, you know, the things that we were designing in, in school were, I'd say, like a little bit more like high design brow oriented, meaning like these were like fashionable products. These were things that were like sexy. And I'd found myself into a position where I was essentially designing industrial products. So my opportunity, I thought, was to put a design spin on these industrial products. And ultimately, I think that's that's one of the marks that I left. But I kind of started to feel like like a lesser designer, I guess, in the world of designers because I was designing these industrial products. Like I, I almost felt like kind of a failure. One of the first projects that I took on at the company was to design a whole line of store fixtures that were of a consistent look, quality, fit, design, finish. That was a pretty exciting opportunity for me because there were other designers in the company that had been there several years before me and they put me on this new project that was supposed to be like the flagship of the company. It was a complete disaster. The idea was that you could create these modular parts that would all work together and you could create any display in the world by just ordering these parts. I remember the first time we put the prototype together and it almost like fell apart in front of our eyes it was so bad yeah <laughs> i mean it was it was one of these things that i had designed it perfectly in the computer this is a great example of no real world experience but tons of ideas i had designed it perfectly in the computer and we took a trip to China to see the first prototype and it was just a disaster. And the, and the people in the Chinese factory were like, I can't believe that I actually made this. I knew that this wasn't going to work, but I couldn't figure out a way to communicate that to you over email. So here you are looking at this prototype that's a, an awful disaster. So what do you want to do now? Well, that was the way Ian was. He wasn't this guy that was just going to sit there and crank designs all day. He was always the person that was pushing us to, to think differently about what we were doing. Although I was really bummed out about it, I, I remember taking that lesson from it, which is like, you can't just hide behind the computer for weeks and weeks on end and then come out with this great prototype. Like You actually have to test many times before you sink in that many hours. Another thing that I learned is in that company specifically was like, why did no one check me on that? Like, Why did nobody test me on that? And I think the only thing I can come to is like, 
I must have exuded so much confidence <laughs> that no one felt that they had to. So it's interesting to note how Ian came to work. First off, he was always 10 minutes late, at least, which he still is today. He also always showed up in a race car or a leather suit because he was driving for an hour on a motorcycle, a racing motorcycle to come to work. When you think about entry-level staff members in California in those days, you know everybody's coming to California to get a job. This idea that you would just, oh, have a race car or a motorcycle is kind of insane. Like, where's that coming from? I quickly figured out that if I drove a car to the office, because the office was like way up the coast. So I figured out pretty quickly, if I drove my car, it would take me 45 minutes. But if I rode my motorcycle, it would only take me about 25 minutes. Because in California, you can do what they call lane splitting, which is you can ride your motorcycle in between cars. My main motivation in the morning was like, how late can I sleep in and then still make it to work? I just remember in high school, my mom used to yell my name at the top of her lungs to get me to wake up. And it was like the most awful way that I could think of to wake up in the morning. And it was such a disappointment to get to a job and and find out that everyone wanted you there at the same time. I just figured like, I'll stay a half hour late or I'll work through lunch or whatever. Why was there a late when you're coming to work as an adult? I remember the moment that Ian and I's relationship changed. Because you have to consider my position at the time, which was that I was a very young vice president of operations of this company. I was trying to act older. And so I dressed nicer than I've ever dressed since then. I acted older and I wasn't friends with anybody. And part of the reason that I was able to ascend in the company, looking back on it, I was kind of this hatchet man. I was willing to make these really bold decisions about people's lives and their jobs. I was really young and all I cared about was growing the company. And so anyone who sort of stood in the way of that mission, I would without conscience, be like, well, this person should be removed. And so this is sort of my persona at this office. I mean, I I don't think I was well-liked at all. Dan had a desk kind of across from mine. I couldn't really see his desk from mine. But I remember thinking, like, this is an interesting guy. Like, he's in and out of the owner's office all day. He reads books on his lunch break and he didn't really want to have anything to do with me. And so like instantly I was attracted to this guy cuz I was like, well, wow, this is this guy has access to the owner who I didn't really talk to that much. Although I kind of understood what was Dan's purpose there, I felt like I could figure out a way to connect with him because we were kind of the same age. We had gone to school in the south together. So I remember Dan being kind of elusive kind of not friendly, but I also remember like kind of having his number early on and figuring like, yeah, I know how I I know how to get through to this guy. So I remember one day I'm out in the warehouse because we had screwed up and occasionally we would have to do 
Remember, we were ordering products from factories and from China, but occasionally we'd have to do touch-up work. Ever the martyr, sometimes I'd roll up my sleeves and go out back and grind down steel parts or whatever in order to make the clients happy. And I remember that's when I first talked to Ian in a personal way. He sidled up to me, and so we just got to talking. In my mind, I was like, this person is presenting a challenge to your workplace persona because you kind of like him. And it wasn't very long afterwards that he made fun of my car stereo situation and then offered to fix it. So in developing relationships, and with Dan being no exception, like one of my ways into people's lives is to help them with their vehicles. Because a lot of times people are not savvy, you know, so I'll say like, oh, your tires need to be rotated. I think for Dan, it was um, that he needed a, uh, or that he wanted a better car stereo. It was like a week later or whatever, I drove over to his house. But out back, the reason he had rented this place was it had a garage. And so he pulls up the garage and it, he sort of puts on these surgical gloves, you know, and he's got rags everywhere and he just knows what to do. I think at this time he offered me a beer. We spent hours putting this car stereo into my car where he was donating this old thing that he had to me. And I think it was that moment where I was like, all right, the gig is up. We are going to be friends. Meanwhile, at the company, I think it's fair to say that Ian was definitely not becoming friends with one person. At the start, we mentioned that we had already had a lead designer, someone who had already been in place for a while when Ian joined. I'd been in the company for about a year, and there were two other designers. There was someone that got hired maybe six months before me, and then there was the first designer. He'd been there probably two years. And so it was kind of this ranking order, right? And I was third in that order. Although I had like that disastrous failure with the store fixture line, I'd kind of picked up the pieces. I had redesigned a much simpler line that worked, that was elegant, and that I was proud of. I thought I brought a couple of innovative ideas to the team in terms of design process, certainly some of the products that were designed. And I was doing things that hadn't been done before there. At the same time, I was starting to butt heads with the lead designer there because I could kind of tell that my position in the company was never going to change no matter what I did. So I felt like some of the things that I did over the past year were worth more money, were valuable to the company. And when I had my first year review, that's not really how everyone else saw it. I wouldn't go as far as to say like people were upset by the way I was operating, but like people were not used to it. People were very comfortable in their lane. And I think one of the reasons why I clicked with Dan and maybe why he was like a little bit conflicted about this was because I think both Dan and I kind of realized in that company, like if we wanted to do great things in this and the CEO was always talking about you know, the great things that we were going to do and how we're going to grow the company so fast. And and I think Dan and I both realized in the company, like, if we're actually going to achieve great things, like we need to shake things up a bit. Like we can't just stay the course. And so in my mind, I was shaking things up, both for myself and for the company. 
I remember my first year review, I remember talking about some of the things that went good and some of the things that went bad. And I also remember asking for a raise. I remember there was one moment when Ian sort of stepped up and asked for this raise that was both like brilliant and naive at the same time. Like he threw off the whole structure of how we paid people at this company because he essentially demanded more money. And it was this really awkward moment where we were simultaneously really offended. As a team, we were offended by him, but we also gave him the money. And I think this sort of thing created a rift that would never be healed between him and his nominal manager and the owner of the company. And so I think it was that that led to, you know what, remember that portfolio that I sent you with the NDA and you're giving me crap about? Well, I'm willing to share some of that stuff with you, but I don't trust, I don't trust this company with these ideas. And yeah, I remember him saying, well, we can't do it at the office. I want to meet you at the whistle stop to talk about this. So the whistle stop, it was a block away from Dan's apartment. And we used to go to the whistle stop on the weekends. It was a very dark and dingy bar on the inside. It was very small. Bands would come and play there and you'd be like two feet away from them. And the furthest person away from them would be like 12 feet. So it was like a very intimate setting. It was kind of our spot that we went to a lot. It wasn't long after that that year review that I figured out it really wasn't sustainable for me to work much longer in that company. And I didn't like express that to anyone. My attitude, I don't think, changed around the office. Like I, I still did good work. I still pushed forward initiatives. But I also realized like the politics, like the structure, it was never going to be a place where someone like me could thrive. So about a year in, I started thinking about some of my own designs. I started thinking about some of the products that I had designed in college. And I started thinking about leveraging the infrastructure that I had at my job because it was actually perfect. Like we were manufacturing in China. We had direct relationships with factories. I could actually see how products got prototyped, designed, manufactured, all that. And so I started putting two and two together and I thought like, you know, this job isn't ideal, but the setup is like the infrastructure is. And I knew enough to be dangerous, but I also knew that I didn't really have access to that infrastructure and Dan did. Dan was the one that had the ear of the CEO of the company. Dan was the one that knew how to manage these factories in China. You know, I knew how to design the products, but he was the one that was actually managing the factories. And so I saw Dan as like someone that could help me get out of my situation, but then also start to make these products. And then thirdly, like change our lives. Because like I said, when I got to know Dan, I I kind of realized that he too like wanted more for himself than I could see that this company was going to be able to afford. And so I saw that there could be a future with us working together to kind of achieve our goals. Going back to the whistle stop, I remember it being kind of early in the evening. So not very many people were there. So we were able to sit at a high top table. I can't remember if I actually brought sketches or whatnot, but it it wouldn't be unlike me to bring sketches. 
I started to discuss with him these products that I've been thinking about. And there were two. One was a valet parking podium. And the other was a piece of cat furniture. It didn't feel like we were doing something wrong. Ian was very professional about it. It wasn't like a, hey, let's be friends and go to this bar and talk about big ideas. It was more like, hey, man, like I'm going to show you some important stuff and I want you to keep a lid on it. And I remember looking at this stuff thinking, what the hell is that? And he said, well, it's sort of the future of cat furniture. For me, I think the meeting was about two things. It was it was about engaging Dan, trying to see if he was interested, if he thought we could push this through the CEO of the company. I desperately needed Jim's infrastructure to make this work. And Dan was the segue between Jim. And um, I didn't have Jim's ear. And I don't think Jim particularly liked me that much. It was also about expressing that I was moving on. It was my first step of saying this is the beginning of the end with this company. I mean, I thought this was cool because this guy has ideas and I didn't have any. We were just so sick of doing what our clients wanted us to do. We figured if we were ever going to get rich, we would have to do something for ourselves. We'd have to make our own products. It was a really simple insight. But in a business where you're working 10 hours a day for demanding clients, you know, it's really easy to forget that like, hey, that's like never going to get you where you want to go. You're just on this hamster wheel. And Ian saw that right away. Like, hey, man, we got to make our own stuff. I don't think he was speaking with me because we like to drink beer together. I think he was speaking with me because he felt like I was the person that could maybe get this stuff done. And that's what happened. So I scheduled a meeting with the owner of the company, and he was well aware of the problems of services businesses. And I said, look, like this guy's special. He sees this stuff. We should partner with him to create a product business. And we brought it to him after the office had shut down. Jim said, okay, come into the office. I explained the products. I explained the vision. I showed him some sketches. And I remember Jim being like, okay, yeah, this this sounds interesting. This sounds cool. And then kind of looking at his watch and, and saying like, oh, I have to pick up my son from basketball. Of course, you know, looking back now, having a kid myself, like Jim had three kids. He had this company. He had a wife. Like he was like a really busy guy. And there were two young, enthusiastic kids in his office, like pitching them some harebrained idea. And I think I probably would have had the exact same response that he had today. But at the time, like for me, it was a, it was a bit of a letdown. Nevertheless, the three of us, Jim, Ian, and myself agreed to terms pretty quickly. And that agreement was to split equity three ways and form a new product company that would exist like a new sapling, our darling little sapling growing within the structural forest of that old services company. So we'd be using the same office and sharing the software and factory relationships, the shipping, the warehouse, and all. In short, taking advantage of the infrastructure that was already in place. After we pitched Jim, it started to get like a little bit better from that conversation. We started to have more conversations. I remember going into Jim's office during business hours and closing the door with Dan 
my boss, my design boss, didn't understand why he wasn't being included in, in those conversations. Because up until that point, he was my boss. What was essentially happening was Dan, myself, and Jim were forging this new company. And uh, it was all in complete secrecy. That was kind of a turning point for me and my boss where he realized like something was amiss. At some point, it became time to just let everybody know that was at the company what was going on. And basically that me, Dan, and Jim had started this new company. We were going to be making these types of products. And essentially, I was going to stop working my job there. And I was going to work on these products full time and I was still going to be in the office. And Dan was going to continue his position, but then be moonlighting for this new company. What happened in that room that day in the corner office, that deal cut between this young, naive vice president and, I mean, even me having that title was ridiculous. And this, the newest designer the guy who just rocked up in motorcycle leathers, the idea that these two employees were going to get the opportunity to run their own business that leveraged the resources that all the rest of the team had built over the course of five years. I don't remember how long it was toxic and it needed to be managed and it wasn't my position or Ian's position to manage it. Most of the people in the office were on board with what was going on. There was only a couple of people and one being my boss that was not on board with the situation. And so it quickly turned into a very hostile environment. But it, it was unfortunate because I really needed to be in the office. I needed the software. I needed the warehouse. These were all the reasons why Jim was our partner. You know, we put up a website over the weekend and we, within a few days, we got our first sale and, and we didn't even have a product yet. We just kind of put up a rendering or an image. We started getting phone calls and it was around that time, I think that Dan realized like, hey, this is actually going to work or this actually has a shot at working. Now, no mention of our entrepreneurial story can be complete without mentioning how extraordinarily meaningful the emergence of the blogosphere and early social media was. Now think about, for those of you who are just a little bit younger, just a few years before all this was going down, I had chosen where I went to college from a phone book. I went to university sight unseen. The world was a very opaque place when I was growing up. Fast forward just a few years, and you could read blog posts from people that were in different countries. We were all of a sudden working with factories halfway across the world and hiring people in different countries. It was reading the early dispatches from those in the blogosphere, books like The 4-Hour Workweek, and working directly with people in these foreign countries on a daily basis that stoked my curiosity for this as an emerging opportunity. It was those factors that led me one day in 2008 to unload most of my stuff and jump on a plane to Asia. 
At that time, our nascent company was doing just okay. We had momentum, but it wasn't nearly enough to pay us all salaries. And of course, there was the issue of the growing resentment within Jim's company, especially from Ian's former boss. So with Ian handling the designs and delivery side of our new product company, I was mostly doing marketing and technology. I was also continuing to work and collaborate with my old employer, not only providing marketing services, but heading up a bunch of interesting side projects. I was really hungry and motivated to explore what I saw as incredible new horizons for our business, for our marketing, but for my career. Because remember, I had quit what was my traditional, quote, good job and steady career path. And now I felt it was on me to go make something of this new path. That was the first place I landed was in Vietnam. And there's so many factors that led up to that. One was that we started to manufacture in Vietnam at the time. We were trying to diversify out of China. You know, Jim was a management consultant, so he would always look at these meta trends. Pricing was going up in China. Let's explore Vietnam. So that was one idea in my mind. Another was that, you know, I'd read the four-hour work week. Now, all of a sudden, I had my own business that was making, say, $10,000 a month in revenue, which was not enough. It's a product company. You split it three ways. There's 50 bucks for me at the end of the month. But that 50 bucks meant everything to me. My salary, I understand what that is. I, I worked really hard for this company for a really long time. I sat in this desk a lot of Friday nights at 8 p.m. There's a bunch of different things that all came together, making our own money on our, on our side, reading all these books, the emergence of the blogosphere and stories of entrepreneurship now became really accessible. I wanted to go down on my own ship, you know? So I figured, I remember thinking at the time that, you know, I'd rather go down in flames on my mom's couch than continue this sort of I'm a real business person act. Dan and I had actually just moved in together. We had found an apartment in Hillcrest it wasn't long after we moved in there that he decided he wanted to move to Vietnam. And so I remember feeling pretty bummed out about that. We had put up a big whiteboard in the living room. It was probably like eight feet wide by four feet tall. And every day and every night we would like sketch out our ideas and, and figure out how we we're going to dominate the world. I remember feeling like, Hey man, we're kind of just starting out here. Like we've got some great things going like, and now you're, you're leaving. But at the same time, the reasons he was leaving were going to be good for the company too. Like he was going over to Asia to source web development, which was ended up actually being a really good thing for our company because we had a huge cost advantage. So I felt bummed out that my friend and my business partner was leaving and that I was going to be left in this hostile environment on my own at this office. But then I also, I understood why he was uh, ready to go. So when I'm in Vietnam, and Ian's back in California, you have to imagine Ian carving out a space for him in this office that's enormously hostile to him because he was this junior designer who got this special treatment as the way everybody saw it. And he was also siphoning off resources, you know, trying to get his product onto containers that was pushing product, their product off the container. There was all these kinds of 
disputes. And meanwhile, you know, I'm in Vietnam having the time of my life and just having so much fun doing motorcycle tours, eating food with locals, exploring business ideas, building a team of uh, marketers and people that could uh, help us grow our websites. So at the time, it was interesting because it, my allegiance was mixed. Like I didn't always have Ian's back because the deal was essentially like, look, I'm doing all, all your marketing and technology services for you. Like that's my role as a partner in this company. And I was doing the same for Jim. At the time, Jim was paying me better. So I think those early years, it was, you know, Ian was really the one that was all in. And I was the one that was hedging my bets. Next week on the pod. Ian and I split with Jim and decide to go it alone. I wasn't going into that office anymore because it was hostile and we had to move our products out of the warehouse because it was hostile there. Things certainly weren't great with the three partners. And I think it was around Christmas time I kind of had my breaking point with the whole situation. The deal got done pretty quick. I think everybody wanted an emotional separation from all the bullshit we've all been putting up with. And this very podcast, the one you're listening to now, gets created. And I think I tried to record like six episodes sitting in this dark, my old office that used to be mine, sitting there at like 9.30 p.m., trying to make sense of what was happening in my life, I think, because now all of a sudden I'm like, I'm back at the scene of the crime where it all started, where my career had was something for real. And now I'm making less than half the money and driving a $350 car and I'm loving it. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.